So Dave, this weather is great. I just, uh, I, I got a new deck put in and I was enjoying that yesterday. I was outside typing away on my laptop, enjoying the, uh, enjoying the sun on my face. It was lovely. Nice. Yeah. Good for you. Good for you. It's like almost dark here in Ohio. It's <laughs> four o'clock in the afternoon. And, um, and I'm thinking about that, that photos article that, that talked about best places to vacation. And they talked about how it's like, Oh, Ohio's hot in the summer and cold in the winter. And it's like, yeah, it's cold. Um, it, it's so cold. How cold is it? It's so cold that, um, in Akron and in uh, Cuyahoga Falls, they have like outdoor ice skating rinks. Um, and they closed them because it's too cold outside. <laughs> this is ice. It's too cold for ice. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the other thing I saw, too, was that uh, I, I just found out that I don't have broadband anymore. Oh, really? What happened? Um, the FCC changed the rule to, uh, what, 25 megabit down? Yeah, and, and three up, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm stuck at 18 megabits down and it's like i, I feel terrible now <laughs> you might as well have dial up yeah yeah so i'm a huge fan of this uh this fcc rule change uh because my experience in austin is when google announced that they were bringing gigabit google fiber uh to the city almost immediately time warner suddenly found i don't know in a couch or in their pockets somewhere uh, mm -hmm. a whole bunch of extra bandwidth. Um, mm. So I was able to upgrade. You might remember, I think I talked about this on a previous show. Um, I suddenly was getting 200 megabits for less money than I was paying before. That's um, maddening. That's yeah, which crazy. Is, yeah, yeah, which is maddening, right? Um, so uh, I'm a huge fan of the FCC uh, raising the floor uh, on broadband. Um, although, you know what I would really love is for them to enforce... I don't think that they should be advertising bandwidth maximums anymore. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. They need to be advertising bandwidth minimums um, and putting the SLAs on that. Uh, that would be yep. a lot more useful to me. Yep. A lot more useful. Yep. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of announcements, you have an announcement. Oh, do I? What yeah, do I you, got, you got a new phone. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got a new, I got a new, I got a new telephone. So there was a, we was like Keystone Cops down out here with uh, Consumer Electronics uh, for a while. So anyway, long story short, we're now in possession of four phones with only two people in the house able to use phones. So are and, you a drug dealer now? Or? <laughs> that's right. So we got, we got, we got our, we got our work phone and we got our burners. And yeah. um, so anyway, I ended up in the shuffle. Uh, I ended up with the use of a, a new Motorola X the 2013 version so it was like the big version of the motorola x oh okay was, you know and i would love to go through you know all the fun things you know motorola's got like the ambient notifications mm -hmm. um i can kind of like wave my hand over the phone and it wakes up and tells me if i have messages mm -hmm. and that's the, that kind of polish stuff is nice but i gotta tell you what i'm surprised by is that uh my experience with comparing it to the nexus 5 i was using earlier mm -hmm. these phones are like two years apart and there is virtually no difference that I can discern. Um, mm -hmm. It's basically the same telephone. Um, hmm. uh, I mean, you know, in terms of my, like my app experience, I was expecting, you know, you buy a computer two years apart and it's going to be at least twice as fast, right? Yeah. Um, that was not my experience. I mean, the phones are, they function pretty much the same. I get about the same speed. Network's all basically the same. It's just uh, basically it's the same phone. I just moved it into a different chassis. It's really mm. interesting and uh, makes me wonder if I'm just making bad app choices or if, uh, if this is just how phones work now, like if they've, if they've uh, plateaued. Uh, or, or is it that sort of like the tablet plateau of, of like nobody's buying tablets because they're like good enough? I wonder if phones are going to get to that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, but based on, just on based on my narrow experience here, I, it seems like that's exactly what's happening. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if we had to get this phone anyway, again, for, for stupid reasons. But, um, I think if I didn't get this phone, I don't think I would miss, uh, my Nexus five at all. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It's interesting. Anyway, uh, what else have we got going? Oh, so Dave, I'm going to start a new hobby. Yep. Um, and I wish you would join me. Uh, mm -hmm. are you familiar with FPV quadcopter racing? I saw the video mm -hmm. and everybody has to like pause the recording right now and look at this video because it looks like something out of Star Wars. <laughs> it's super cool. It, so, all it needs is like Ewoks. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. So 
imagine having a quadcopter drone, right? And normally mm-hmm. you would control it with your phone or with a remote controller or whatever. What these guys have done is rigged up uh, the controls and uh, a camera on the on the drone. And then you wear a set of goggles that show you what the drone is, is looking at. Mm-hmm. And so that means you can fly it in the person of the drone, which is why FPV, first person view. Um, mm. And so if that wasn't fun enough, then these guys go out to the woods and stuff and race the drones around. Yeah. That's, so it, much that fun. Is, oh my gosh. I saw <laughs> that and it's like, it's, it, it's like NASCAR, um, yeah, but yeah. like more fun than NASCAR because you're actually in the, you know, it's like from the cockpit. Yeah, yeah, it's NASCAR, but for robots. Yeah. yeah, and and then also the from a safety perspective, it's like if you wreck, nobody's going to die unless it wrecks into somebody. Yeah. But yeah. you know, it's it, so it they they were pretty, uh, um, they they move pretty fast, and it's and it's not like just like little helicopters or whatever. These are like high performance things. Yeah, yeah, they're moving. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm now in, and there's like a bottomless pit of videos on YouTube. You can you just Google mm-hmm. for FPV quadcopter racing. It's uh, looks extraordinary. Um, and now I know what to ask for, for my birthday. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, um, for, uh, and, and so I dropped, uh, $14 and, and just ordered my own quadcopter from China. Um, 14 bucks. I'm like, what could go wrong? We'll we'll see what, and so what's So it's like the world's, it's the Cheerson CX 10. Uh, and it's, um, just looking at the specs of it, you know, it's really highly reviewed for 14 bucks. Um, and it has an RC controller. It doesn't have like a camera or anything on it, but it's, it's super small. It's, it's like smaller than the, the, uh, a deck of playing cards. And, um, but the neat thing about it is that it, um, it's, people have tore it apart and, um, it's using the protocol that the remote is communicating with the, um, the helicopter is the NRF uh, L2401 plus protocol. That's my favorite um, protocol. Yeah, mine too. And so you could buy an Arduino with one of those chips for like 85 cents. And there are people that have taken the remote control. They've created a, a way to um, basically do passive eavesdropping of the remote control to listen to it of all the commands. And then you could use the Arduino to control the uh the, the helicopter through a radio. Cool. Yeah. And that's, that's all the theory is that as far as, you know, maybe I'm totally wrong as far as the way I understand it, but, um, I spent 14 bucks and and we'll see how it goes, but (laughs) it's going to be a nice weekend uh, playing with it. And, um, but I'm looking forward to that. Oh, that's great. That sounds like fun. Yeah. And, And I figure worst case too, it's like, Lauren uses it as a uh, really advanced cat toy for one of her foster kitten babysitting. So, and by advanced, you mean terrifying? Yeah, <laughs> for everybody. Yeah, that's great. Uh, all right, so Dave, what do we got on the show this week? Uh, we got surveillance mm-hmm. uh, on Main Street and in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got uh, we have another entry in the the mailbag um, asking about cutting costs in the DoD. Um, and then we got uh, three new inductees to the uh, Dave and Gunner Security Doghouse. Excellent! I cannot wait. Uh, so, if folks need links uh, to their next drone purchase, uh, Dave, yes. what, what website should they go to? Yeah, they want to go to dgshow.org. So, D's and Dave, G's and Gunner Show.org. Mm-hmm. And we have a cornucopia of fun videos in the cutting room floor this week. Uh, none of them first-person video quadcopter racing, but. Uh, the uh, slow-mo guys did, uh, took a slow-mo camera and shot a camera, uh, like an SLR. Uh, and so you get to see how an SLR operates at 10,000 frames a second. Mm. Totally fascinating. Um, and, uh, let's see, what else have we got? Oh, uh, we got a link to a parody of the, uh, serial podcast, um, Mm -hmm. which is hilarious. It is hilarious. And, uh, and also a, uh, uh, Dave, you use Slack, the, uh, Mm -hmm. the collaboration tool, uh, Mm -hmm. and you're familiar with Slack bot. Uh, mm-hmm. the little robot in there that, that does helpful tasks. Um, somebody, <laughs> so there's a firm that red pepper, I think is what they're called, uh, did a, a parody of Slackbot by, and that they basically retrofitted a Roomba, um, mm-hmm. and let it loose in their office, uh, and, uh, fixed it up so that it emulated a real Slackbot. Um, it's hilarious. Yeah. It's also awesome. like, I, I don't, after I saw that video, I was like, do you, do I want the drone or do I want the, the Slackbot robot? <laughs> and right. it's, you know, 
<laughs> yeah, pretty great. So you, you, you see that and you're going to want one. I showed that to Lauren. She's like, we have to build it. So. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, let's get, let's get this thing rolling. Uh, Dave, wh- where are we with surveillance this week? Yeah, so we got uh, uh, this week in irony um, is uh, maybe it's a new feature we have or maybe it's a recurring feature. But um, so you remember um, we were talking about people using ways to uh, identify where the police is at and it was used to uh, commit uh, a cop killing and all that. Um, so now I guess the cops are decrying ways uh, the traffic app as a police stalker. Right. Right. Because that's the only that's the only purpose for that app. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. And, and it was like um, so there was uh, let's see, Sheriff Mike Brown of Bedford County, Virginia. He said uh, the police community needs to coordinate an effort to have the owner, Google, act like a responsible corporate citizen that they've always been and remove this feature from the application even before any litigation or statutory statutory action. It's good advice. Yeah, right? especially for, especially from a guy who's ostensibly upholding the Constitution. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. Uh, but that was the end of it, right? He was just one crackpot. There were. Yeah. No, there was other people. It's um, Jim Pasco of the uh, executive director of the Fraternal Order of Police said, "I could think of a hundred ways that it could present an officer safety issue. There's no control over who uses it. So if you're a criminal and you want to rob a bank, hypothetically." You can use your ways, or automobile, or mm-hmm. cellular phone. Yeah, or, or like you said, a twelve-year-old with a walkie-talkie. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I, of all the things that the police would want to agitate for, right, like more budgets, like better spending. Um, I don't know, uh, community action program. I mean, what, whatever the thing is. This has to be like at the very, very bottom of the of the list of things that police worry about. Yeah, or well, rather, um, should be right. Yeah, unless it's like a um, don't let a good crisis go to waste thing. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so what did what did Ways have to say about about all this? Yeah, so they they aren't backing down, which is cool. Um, and uh, let's see, um, and and so the in an email. Um, they said that the, the app includes reports of police presence because most users tend to drive more carefully when they believe law enforcement is nearby, um, which I'm sure is true, right? Because you sort of know that you're being potentially watched. But um, personally, like when I'm using Waze and I get a sign of a police report, I you know it's like, yeah, he could be looking for speeders, but there could be an accident up ahead or somebody's pulled over. And, um, I, you know, I want to be super alert because there may be somebody blocking a lane of traffic and I, I may need to be move over to the left or move over to the right. And by having that report there, I think that actually makes it things safer. Right. Although that kind of gives away, I mean, the, that may all be true, but that kind of gives away the more important point, which is <laughs> what that permits is, a, is an argument about efficacy when actually the argument shouldn't really be about efficacy. The argument is about the fact that there is no reason that, you know, that this should be outlawed or forbidden. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, it's, I guess, free speech. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. d- free speech. It's not, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's, are you going to outlaw Like if, uh, I don't know. So pick like an analog. I mean, cause it's so funny, you know, this happens so often where, uh, somebody encounters, uh, an otherwise innocuous thing, and it suddenly is put in a technology context and it's suddenly like new and threatening. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so if say there was a network of people uh, armed with notebooks and a phone tree, um, who were tracking the position of like police, uh, like stakeout points. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. nothing illegal about that. In fact, a 100% legal, there's absolutely nothing the police could do about it. And there was no way that they would get comfortable getting in front of a microphone talking about how they need to prevent this or how they need to, uh, how the government should intervene in some way to uh, to prevent people from doing it, but but if it's a technology or if it's an app or if it's a company that they can now focus their anger on, now suddenly mm-hmm. it's in play, right? And now suddenly the request doesn't sound quite so crazy. Um, yeah, just super frustrating, but double frustrating because it's a double standard, right? Yeah, yeah, do unto others, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that the, it also came out that the. Um, DEA, um, uh, they've been doing uh, camera tracking of hundreds of millions of car journeys across the United States. 
and I'm sure they're keeping careful tabs on that data and how it's retained and, and how it's how it's meant to be used, right? Yeah, and who they share it with. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yep. Yeah. So there's there's a they call it LPRs, uh, mm-hmm. license plate readers, mm-hmm. that will um, uh, that that they would set up on the border, and then they would see people going in and out of the country at, at border cross points, and then collect the license plate numbers and see if people are. Um, uh, you know, or uh, out for a warrant, or the car stolen, or things like that. Um, but that has expanded to um, being uh, all over the place. And and to me, that's not a total surprise because I don't know if you ever noticed, like on a lot of the police cars, there are like cameras hanging off of them at a at an angle. Mm-hmm. And what the police will do is they'll actually drive through like a Walmart parking lot or Target or a grocery store, and and drive up and down and scan all the license plates, and it would create an audible tone saying that, oh, this, the, per, the owner of that car and that license plate, they, they have an outstanding warrant. And they actually use that to see, you know, to pick people up. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And, and I, I think that's, so with some caveats, I think that's actually great. Like that's a, yeah. that's a perfectly, perfectly good use of the technology. What, what I think bugs me and what worries me is, uh, so for, like I said, like the data retention question, um, yep. because, you know, uh, taking photographs of 60 license plates a second, uh, doing some quick analysis. And then if that was the end of the story, that would actually, that would not be too remarkable. And in fact, would probably be a really good use of police time and money. Um, but if you collect that data over time, it becomes uh, quantity as a quality, right? Um, mm-hmm. if you can suddenly trace the movement of a particular car through an urban center over the course of like five or six years, suddenly things start getting a little bit more creepy, right? In, yeah, in, way, in ways that I can't quite define, but. Well, it's it's like associations. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Right, that yeah. it's like maybe somebody got picked up for drunk driving or something. And then you can go back in time and say that, oh man, this this car was parked at a bar three night, you know, uh, five nights out of seven nights a week or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's not a crime, but it's something that they could use that they could, that they've collected that they could draw upon to reinforce, um, uh, you know, uh, criminal action. Did you see the, uh, and I put a link in the show notes of some of the, of those LPR systems where they're, they're actually disguised as other things. Right. Like right. like ladders and and safety cones with a like a camera <laughs> peeping out of it. Yeah. yeah, it's creepy. Yeah, it is creepy. Um, and so, but Dave, help me help me think through this for a second. Um, mm-hmm. It seems that there is there does seem to be a kind of gut check tipping point. Uh, there does seem to be a tipping point for me where my gut suddenly turns and this LPR uh, surveillance. Um, stops being legitimate and a good use of time and money and starts being infringing or chilling, right? Um, mm-hmm. And like hiding the surveillance camera in a traffic cone um, could get starts getting there. Um, the idea of having uh, the, you know, Austin Police Department keep track of 10 years worth of my driving around, I find that super creepy. Mm-hmm. Um I don't exactly know what the threat model is for me, but like I find it creepy. Um, and so, what do you think is a reasonable uh, what, do you, what do you think is a reasonable restriction on this kind of uh, on this kind of data collection? Um, you know, should they be allowed to store this data at all? Is it reasonable for them to keep it for a week, two weeks? Um, should there what kind of restrictions do we want on how they share that data with national? security yep. services right so like is the fbi also entitled to this information um i or the public or the public is the public you know can i foia for this information yeah. um and i think and this is actually just a special case of of the same oh, not a special case but this is the same problem we have with uh with the traffic cameras right mm-hmm. um most of the traffic camera data is uh is collected and i actually know that i know that we're talking about it i don't even know what the retention rules are um but there are no federal rules, so I presume it's a the state or a city level decision mm-hmm. as to like, mm-hmm. do you keep these? Do you keep all this traffic video data for what a month? Um, yep. Yeah, really interesting. As the as the government's ability to analyze this data improves, um, the threat actually changes too. Uh, so that whereas keeping something for ten years is kind of obviously threatening or obviously creepy. Um, mm-hmm. As our ability to analyze the data gets better, you know, so for example, um, if I could just hang a drone over Austin and have it keep video, keep track via video of like an eight square mile area, 
um, and I was just recording that for months at a time, um, I could actually find, you know, regular patterns, right? I could figure mm-hmm. out where, uh, where a particular car goes at a particular time of day. Um, mm-hmm. and that's like surveillance on a scale that's very difficult to imagine. Um, and it's, and because I don't completely understand how it's a threat to me, I find it super threatening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also, well, the other part is, should they make it public where those collection points are? Right. You know, so where, where do they put the cone with the camera in it? And do they put it at, I don't know, an adult bookstore or a strip joint or something like that? And then it's collecting license plates of, of all the patrons that go in. And then somebody decides to run for a public office. And then, it, you know, somebody else does a FOIA request to find out that they're a patron of, of whatever um, off-color facility that they may they uh, patronize. Right. Um, and then that's used to torpedo their, uh, you know, their, their campaign. Yeah, 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 that's right. That's right. Um, and that's a, it's a really interesting thread of thought here too, is that, uh, I'm sure if I go into like into my downtown, um, uh, there are private security cameras all over the place, mm-hmm. um, which interestingly do not have the same chilling effect. Um, uh, I know that the police could access that stuff if they wanted, um, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have the same, uh, kind of panopticon effect. Um, yeah. that it does when you have kind of one entity with control over a number of cameras spread throughout the city. Um, and that same entity has the power to decide whether I go to jail or not. Yeah. Yeah. There's no correlation mm-hmm. and there may be no, you know, the retention for the, uh, convenience store may be as big as the hard drive. Yeah. 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 Just, so. or it's like, I wasn't robbed last night so I can blow over last night's video. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, Another way of looking at it is like a security camera in a from a bookstore or you know a convenience store that has to be subpoenaed for right or like the person has to give it, has to surrender that information because of an incident or because of, because of some investigation. Um, whereas if you are simply recording everything um, and you can kind of dip into that pool of data whenever you like, uh, it makes it very very tempting to do kind of preemptive work right and yep. do like predictive stuff. And now suddenly we're in Minority Report. Mm-hmm. Um, in a kind of a clumsy way. Um, yeah. Yeah. Totally fascinating set of problems, actually. It's really from a, like a public policy and like kind of what laws do you pass and what rules do you want in place? It's a really interesting set of questions. Yep. It's it's a movie script waiting to happen. Yeah. 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 Or, or it's minority report. <laughs> <already done. laughs> or it's minority report. Yeah. yeah. I already took care of mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yep. Yep. Meanwhile, um, so, so, uh, Delaware, they're they're talking about doing digital driver's license. What does that mean? Yeah, so instead of having uh, a like physical card, you know, like laminated card that has your driver's license on it, mm-hmm. um, you basically install an app from the government that has your identification on it, and you can um, you get pulled over, you could just show that to the law law enforcement or show that app to. Um, whoever's asking for it and use that as your identification. Uh, I think it's great. I think it's a great idea. Really? Yes, I do. I do. Um, well, because the, the, the idea of a driver's license, uh, the, the idea of like a driver's license as being some like authentication token is just insane. Right. Yes. The, the idea that like, Oh, I'm going to verify who you are by looking at this piece of plastic that you have and it has your face on it and it has a name on it and your, you know, some identifying number. So it's obviously it's you. Okay. Well, mm-hmm. that's crazy talk. Right. Um, you know, we talk about two factor authentication all the time. Um, why would you, why would you Dave trust me to produce identification, verifying my own identity? Um, that one that can be so easily forged, mm-hmm. uh, you know, is for the same reason, like, does a signature on your check actually verify that it's you? No, it doesn't like not even a little bit. Um, right. but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's like archaic way of confirming somebody's identity. Um, you know, I've been pulled over by the cops before for, you know, like a traffic stop or something and not have my driver's license. And, uh, sure. I get a penalty for that, but they're still able to go back and verify my identity by pulling up the record in the, in, on the laptop in the cruiser. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and so what's more important is that, the driver's licensing agency has my photo, has my name, et cetera, um, and can, they can confirm my identity that way. Um, I think that's, that's much more useful, and that's an actual like, positive confirmation versus this like, cockamamie whack-a-mole uh, piece of plastic that I carry around in my wallet. So yeah, like, let it be an app, if that, uh, you know, and just let it, be a, uh, let it be a shortcut to confirming my identity. 
Yeah, I, I totally disagree with you. Okay. Um, Good. Yes. All right. Yes. We never do this. Go. Yeah. yeah here we're, here, we're taking the gloves off. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, like, I would think that if, as a plat, I agree with you as far as like, oh, this piece of plastic or whatever. Maybe what you do is you put an RFID chip in it or some sort of smart card or something like that. But I wouldn't want it to be on my smartphone, which is why I don't use my smartphone as a credit card payment device either mm -hmm. um, for a couple of reasons. Um, one is it, you know, smart, you know, your phone's battery typically dies a lot. And I'd hate to have my phone die and my identity go with it. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that uh, a couple other problems that I would have with it would be, um, well, I'm installing an app from the government on my phone. You have to trust that. And, and maybe it's fine. That's, maybe it's not a big deal. Um, the other thing is, can you copy it or come up with a fraudulent app, like uh, do like a fake ID sort of app um, that is, you know, says something different? Like, is there a way that I can change the uh, a 16 year old to change her age to 21 and, and have it look kind of official? Mm -hmm. um, what happens if somebody steals your phone? Do they take your identity? Can you install it on multiple devices? Maybe. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and then also, what happens if you get pulled over and um, you, it, well, now you have to give your unlocked phone to a police officer to uh, take back to his car? And, and that opens you up to having things being taken out. And I have a link in the show notes about that actually happening where uh, a police officer stole nude pictures off of two different women's phone mm -hmm. uh, phones. Um, so they were pulled over for like DUI. They were had they had to have their phones their phones were confiscated. I don't know why um, and had to be unlocked. And what the cop did was he uh, went through the pictures, SMSed uh, the pictures he liked to himself. And that's how he got caught, um, which <laughs> is dumb. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, but you know, so that that happened. Um, so it's I just see like all kind of problems with it. I would much rather have like a dedicated identification, like like if it was a plastic card with a chip in it that's hard to clone, harder to clone. I, I would rather have that than an app which you can you can copy software. See, I would I would rather get away from this notion that that I need to carry around identification that confirms my identity altogether, right? Um, because, because of, because actually for all of these reasons, um, I can imagine uh, having like a QR code that a cop could scan, um, you know, mm -hmm. kind of driver side, you know, scan the QR code and then up comes, you know, a bunch of identity information and it, and all it would be is like a shortcut to let the cop access the relevant information in the DMV database, right? Yep. Um, that like that is a that is something totally secure. That's that's convenient for everybody, um, and I can see that being like a really good use. Uh, as as long as you don't have to give up your phone. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, right. Exactly like right. you hold your phone up, he scans it, boom. But if he has to take it back to the cruiser, yeah, yeah, I'd have a problem. See, and I think that I think too that especially because you know we spend so much time on the show talking about the problems with security on on mobile phones um, and you know <laughs> security in web browsers and stuff like this. Um, the idea of getting away from trying to trigger trying to trying to coerce a smartphone, something as insecure as a smartphone or something yep. as insecure as a laptop computer, into being our like a source of truth, yeah. um, I think is a really really good thing. Um, and to the extent that we can. Um, that we can kind of offload a lot of that responsibility elsewhere um, is probably a pretty good idea. Yep. And, and I, I like your idea too of like the app should not have the birth date, all, all the right. critical data inside the app. It mm -hmm. should just merely be like a database key into a database that somebody authenticated would be able to see. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So um, if a third party can get a hold of that, you know, the, the, the impact is minimized from personally identifiable information. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I guess like the, it's not like I'm a security genius here, but like the notion would be, uh, I could carry around a QR code or memorize a number even. Um, mm -hmm. and then a cop would be able to use that number to go pull identity information on me. And it would be, I presumably would be some kind of biometrics, right? It would be, and like, like the face, right, on my driver's license. Um, and in fact, the Real ID Act 
um, says that most driver's licenses in the country right now actually have biometric data in them as well or associated with them, right? So fingerprints, say, or a iris scan, or I don't know what they've got. Um, but the cop would be able to use that unique identifier to go pull the relevant biometric data and then confirm it curbside, right? Um, mm. That seems to me like a really uh, super effective way of verifying someone's identity and making sure they don't have warrants and, and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, I don't. But this idea of like fetishizing some like papers or plastic card or some app on the phone and imbuing that with some like magical power to confirm my identity uh, just freaks me out. I don't like yep. it. Yep. Yep. I agree. All right. All right. Glad we sorted that out. Um, yeah. Hey, let's talk. Let's talk about something everybody can agree upon. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. Back doors. Everybody wants back doors. Everybody wants backdoor. I want a backdoor. I want a backdoor. Yeah. yeah, everybody gets a backdoor. So this is China this time, right? Yeah, yeah. So instead of the FBI wanting a backdoor and all the software, now China wants a backdoor and all of its software. <laughs> so if so, you want... <laughs> but it's, go ahead. It's, it's good when we do it, and it's bad when they do it. Well, no, I have... Yeah, you're, I guess you're right, because... Um, yeah. So what, what happened was... Um, so China, they came out with some ruling so that um, anybody that wants to sell tech uh, to uh, the Chinese banks, they have to uh, be able to build backdoors into their hardware and software. Um, they have to turn over their source code and submit to extensive audits. Huh. Um, so that, now, but this differs from kind of the, some of the Snowden stuff in some significant ways, though, right? In which way? So, yeah, so the, so in the Snowden thing, the idea was that they, they were going to compromise maybe with or without the company's cooperation, but it wasn't right. coercive, right? They didn't say, you can't do business unless you do X, Y, Z. Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, so th so that, part's, that part, I guess, is important. Um, I do appreciate the transparency from the Chinese security yes. apparatus. <laughs> like, yeah. There's really no question about whose side they're on. Um, yep. and, they, and it was actually ironic that, uh, China asked for this in, in the same week, really, that, uh, the U S officially gave up on, uh, on the clipper chip. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was a FIPS 185. Um, and for the, for you youngsters who don't remember, this is back in the nineties. Uh, the U S government wanted to, uh, they, they said, okay, yes, everybody gets, everybody should have encrypted telephone lines. We agree. Also, we agree that all those encrypted telephones should have backdoors that the FBI will be able to use. And we promise we'll only use it when we have subpoenas. Right. Uh, and so they, they built up this like elaborate set of technical standards to make those make the encryption possible. Um, they manufactured these like clipper chips, which were meant to be embedded in all the telephones. AT&T helped them out. Um, Dave, can you guess how popular that was? Not very. Not very. Um, and so uh, as, as, our, uh, as our friend Mark Bohannon uh, who worked for the Department of Commerce at the time, what he said is uh, somewhere there was a warehouse with like 10,000 AT&T telephones with clipper chips in them. Probably <laughs> China can buy them now. <laughs> yeah, China can buy them now. Yeah. Um, but, the, but the lesson learned there is that uh, people will not willingly submit to this kind of thing. And you need, uh, you know, a government uh, with the power to, you know, uh, blackball a company. Um, yep. Like that's the only thing that can get a company to to go along with a plan like this, um, and I would be surprised even if the, you know, they were targeting particular Western technology companies. I would be surprised if any of them complied, um, yeah, uh, because they're certainly not going to add it into the same products that they're selling in the West, um, because that would knock them out of the running completely. Um, yeah. they would have to create like new product lines with you know special you know Chinese security enhanced products. Um, <laughs> or or do it for every country where it's yeah. like every, you either have to have a version of the software for every different country or you have the same version for all the countries and then you each country gets their own like uh, simultaneous uh, uh, private key where they can unlock everything. So yeah. if you have a bank in China, well, the Chinese government can go and look at it. Um, but the U.S. can't use their key to get in. And then you have a bank in the U.S., then the U.S. can, can get into the, the, the banks, but not, um, but not the Chinese because they have a different key. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Um, and so what's interesting about this is it's less about the, well, it's less about the, the, tech, the companies complying with the Chinese mandate 
Um, it's more about what this does to the companies in the market, right? Because yep. that's where the consequences are. Um, and so, you know, you have companies like Huawei um, who are very popular in Asia and not e and much less popular in the West and in the United States because it's kind of generally acknowledged that they've been compromised in one way or another by, by the Chinese government. Mm -hmm. um, and so by China asking for, for this rule, it's almost like kind of like going in the other direction. It's interesting. Yeah. Well, and I know that what, I think it was the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. They were all upset about that ruling, saying that it's going to you know screw up. You know, since the United States provides a lot of the software and information technology to the world, um, it's it's going to hurt business for us. Um, and then, um, but also I wonder too, like what about like public cloud providers where um, like somebody wants to use like Salesforce.com. Um, in China, do they have to have, and this is, a, and let's say this is a banking example. I know Salesforce doesn't do banking, but say PayPal would be another one or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, would they, would there have to be, uh, would PayPal have to stand up um, a version of PayPal in China in order to do commerce or, or in every country um, so that they could be monitored in there, but all the other countries can't be monitored? And that potentially hurts the, um, the cloud computing model where you don't necessarily have, you know, you can have a small number of very large clouds distributed about the globe, but not, but not necessarily have to have one in every country. Yeah. Well, and this is, this gets to the, so China has been really clever about this particular thing. So actually using concerns like these as a form of protectionism. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, you put these laws in place and what you're de facto, what you're doing is encouraging a domestic industry uh, mm -hmm. to solve these problems, right? So rather than Chinese customers using Amazon as an example, um, they would be not just encouraged, but like obligated by law to use a Chinese service instead, um, yep. thereby driving customers to the Chinese provider or the Chinese Amazon equivalent or the PayPal equivalent or what have you. Um, so it's interesting. They're actually like killing two birds with one stone with some of this stuff. Um, you saw the same thing with their, they have a, like a hinky Wi-Fi standard, um, yes. which is not like the 802.11 that we use. They use a t totally different Wi-Fi, which I'm sure is very insecure. Um, or security and, enhanced. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah that's right. Specially right. enhanced. Yeah, right. Um, and, you know, and they did it because it, it actually encouraged a domestic Wi-Fi industry, like the manufacturing industry. Um, so, like, real smart. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, if I was China, I, you know, um, <laughs> if I was uh, if I was the Chinese government, it's it's hard to fault them. It, it on paper, you know, this kind of thing makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, it can, but you can only pull it off if you've got what 1.5 billion customers. Um, yes. That you can that you can influence, right? Yeah, um, yeah, interesting, super interesting. Um, so I got another piece of China news. Mm -hmm. I read this great article uh, about uh, about some dude um, whose uh, whose website uh, was suddenly swamped with like orders of magnitude more traffic than use than than before, and he did a little bit of forensics and figured out that all of the traffic was coming from China, and apparently what had happened is that. Uh, someone in China had been mucking with the DNS entries mm. uh, for Chinese websites and had ended up routing all of the traffic to like whatever Weibo or something over to this guy's server. Oh. Um, and so he was suddenly getting, yeah, 1.5 billion customers worth of traffic um, <laughs> sent to sent to his website. Um, and of course, the website just melted down. Um, yeah. But it was just really interesting, like this idea of... Uh, of weaponizing the great firewall of China, right? Um, almost yeah. like charging up the Death Star and then like unleashing it on, <laughs> you know, on, on, on unsuspecting websites. Well, was it the DNS servers um, controlled by the Chinese government or, or I presume it's literally a, you know, part of the great firewall or? Yeah, he wasn't, I mean, he wasn't sure, you know, whether it was like some proxy went haywire or whether, you know, someone had messed up the DNS entries or whatever. But yeah, um, yeah the effect was that basically like funneled all this traffic to his website. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, totally, totally fascinating. And, uh, yeah, like, <laughs> like the most amazing denial of service attack ever. Um, just take all of the outgoing Chinese internet traffic and send it to one person and yeah, just watch, that would hurt. And, just watch yeah. and just watch computers melt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kind of, yeah. Pretty amazing. Yup. Uh, speaking of, uh, speaking of meltdowns, uh, do you hear about the, <laughs> do you hear about this company Camfrog? No. What happened? 
So they have an app that does, I don't know, camera stuff uh, or whatever. And uh, there is a knockoff app, um, very similar to our hypothetical driver's licensing app that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, this, uh, so this knockoff app, uh, Camfrog was upset because they like, copied their logo. It looked and smelled exactly like their app. And so they put in a takedown notice for the app, right? So they told Google, hey, go take this, uh, take this app down. This is you know, confusingly similar to our own uh, marks. And uh, so Google dutifully complied by taking their app down. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, uh, it was that. Confusing. It was that like, similar. Yeah, it was that similar. And so, <laughs> uh, so Camfrog is like, okay, well now we're out of business, right? Because we just we just we just DMCA'd ourselves. Um, and so, what did they do? They did the only thing they could do, which was uh, file a uh, file a grievance uh, with Google. Um, basically countermanding their own DMCA order. Um, so, you know, there's like a, there's like an appeals process for these takedowns. And so they filed one on their own behalf. Wow. Um, yeah, just a, oh man, pretty bad, pretty bad. Mm. Anyway, uh, all right, let's see if we can solve another problem. What's, uh, so, uh, Dave, can you reach into the mailbag? Yeah. Yeah. We got a letter here from Sparky. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, long-time listener of the show. Um, so he, he writes uh, that the, the Budget Control Act is driving budgets down in government. What action should DOD management take to drive down IT costs? Alternatively, what IT investments should DOD make to decrease costs elsewhere? Mm-hmm. Good. Good. Great question. Um, and I'm glad someone finally asked us, Dave. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I don't know. I'm full of opinions about this. But what, what, did, you, what did you have in mind? I, I think it, to sum it up is um, what I, my thinking is like don't f thirty five it. <laughs> just, just please stop. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Um, and you know, so um, you know, uh, like fail faster, succeed sooner. Um, have an extra strategy. Minimize your technical debt. Um, those are things that we've we've been talking about for years. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, you know, seeing these large procurements come out, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's better to make small bets and, and have them pay off than to, uh, um, have these really very large things. Um, because it, if it's so big, it's really hard for you to be nimble and technology changes so quickly. Um, it's really hard for you to respond, especially after you spent billions of dollars being committed to one particular idea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. Yeah, Um, how about you? So I'm thinking, I go back and forth on this stuff, but uh, because, you know, it's hard to say, like, DoD is such an impossibly big and complicated operation. It seems, like, foolish just to say, like, I can boil down all this into three bullet points. Um, Mm -hmm. Although your bullet points are actually pretty good as, like, guiding principles. Um, Mm -hmm. I think... uh, Heading towards and encouraging commoditization is uh, is another pretty good kind of guiding strategy. Um, uh, the DoD especially uh, fetishizes new projects and new technology, um, and it is also a huge fan of specialization. Uh, mm-hmm. For that, um, and those two things are related. Um, so that F thirty five, right? Great example. So F thirty five was going to be the one airplane that rules them all, right? And so. We're going to say, okay, we got one airplane and it's going to be, well, okay, so this guy needs this other thing. This guy needs something a little bit different. This guy needs something a little bit different. Um, okay, well, now we've got quote unquote one airplane, but mm-hmm. uh, when it, you know, it ends up being like six or seven different airplanes because you got the Marine one and you got the Navy one and you got the Air Force one and you got the one we're going to export. Um, that all makes that all makes the project more expensive. And so um, instead of instead of pursuing this like, insane specialization route, um, Mm -hmm. going towards just sticking to the basics and commoditizing stuff as much as possible. An example of that would be like the email, uh, the, uh, the email as a service initiative, um, that actually that Halverson just talked about, uh, the CI, the DAD CIO, uh, Terry Halverson talked about last there this week. Um, how about drones? (laughs) <laughs> no, drones. no, seriously. Like, so instead mm-hmm. of having like with F-35 where it's one plane to rule them all, look at all mm-hmm. the different drone models that are out there from like Global yeah. Hawk and Predator and mm-hmm. the really big ones to uh, things that can uh, that are a lot like stealth or I guess kind of stealth. You you have the ones that can fit on a backpack that you can launch, mm-hmm. you know, from a, a soldier could, could launch. Um, you know, I think that's compelling there where it's like, oh, well – 
people don't get wed to like if Predator goes away, you still have Global Hawk. You have all these other other drones that you have to pick from. Um, so I, I I think that that you know having having like many smaller bets is better than than one very large one. You're right, and that goes to and that goes towards your exit strategy. Uh, mm-hmm. principle, right? Um, is that you're, if you're making lots of small bets, it's easier to admit that you made a mistake and go and change your mind and go do something else, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, the there's another force at work here, um, and uh, and it's the, like in, in software, you know, it's the enterprise licensing agreement. Um, so I forget where this statistic came from, but um, there's, I think it was the DOD, uh, the agency spends, every time they cut a purchase order for something, it costs them over $5,000, Mm. just in like in bureaucratic costs. Right. Um, and so every time the DOD is, uh, spending $2,000, it's actually spending $7,000. Um, and so just thinking about like the transaction costs of a lot of what they're doing, uh, could be mitigated by like enterprise licensing agreements as an example. Um, just having blanket contracts for stuff like email, right? Um, you say in DOD, you say we've pre-negotiated these contracts with these three providers. You're welcome to choose any one of those three. We don't particularly care which, um, just choose the, you know, best features at best cost. Um, that's a nice way of preventing, uh, that's a nice way of, of uh, obviously like using the DOD's bargaining power, um, mm-hmm. but it's also a nice way of eliminating fiefdoms inside the organization, right? Um, because one of the greatest sucks on, because the DOD is so large and complicated, I, I feel like one of the biggest sucks to its efficiency is not necessarily in the inefficiency within a particular program, but it's inefficiencies in the transaction costs between programs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we've told the story on the show before about when DISA tried to set up their own cloud service, um, they, uh, tried to enable credit cards and the credit cards worked. Uh, but on the back end, it still took them three days to move money from one side of the organization to the other. Right. Wow. Um, and so you could, you could swipe your credit card, but it would take you three days to get the virtual machine you asked for. Um, that kind of inefficiency I think is bad, not even in the direct dollar costs, uh, but the costs to morale, um, the costs to organizational, like the organizational efficiency, like the, the efficiency toward the mission. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it, it just, uh, it, that's, that's the stuff that people hate about working within the DOD, right? The fact that it is slow to react, that it's super risk averse and so on. And so, um, kind of having pre-negotiated contracts, um, encouraging commoditization of problems that are solved, um, mm-hmm. is a, is I, I would hope is like a nice way of, of, of mitigating some of that. Uh, some of that kind of bureaucratic crush. Mm-hmm. Just a guess, though. Yeah, no, that's good ideas. Good ideas. Yeah, you too. Uh, all right, so who's in the doghouse? Oh, we got we got three inductees uh, this week. So um, the first one, uh, we just blast through these, I guess. Um, so go go internet on on your airplane, right? Um, so they are giving out um, certificates uh, claiming that they're Google. Jesus. Yep. What a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah, because they don't want people looking at YouTube. So then they'll like in- instead redirect the the traffic to um, GoGo and say, oh, you can't do that. So you would think there would be a better way to do that. But um, what's scary is that you get a lot of times, you know, people, hopefully it's less common, but people go to a site where there's like an expired certificate or self-signed and you get that certificate warning and then people just say, yeah, whatever. And then they blow through and they remember that connection. Well, if they do that, um, now GoGo, um, you know, the, that certificate is um, recognized as being valid for Google, which is kind of scary. Yeah, double gross because Go, uh, Go, double gross because GoGo takes such pride in selling its users' activity data uh, to advertisers. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And so the next one in the, in the doghouse is, uh, Microsoft. Um, so do do you use a wireless keyboard or mouse? Uh, as it happens, I don't, um, Hmm. but I do, but I do own a few. How about you? Okay. Yeah. I use a wireless mouse, um, but I don't use the wireless keyboard. Um, but one of the, one of the things with the Microsoft keyboards, um, and I don't know if it's been fixed, but, um, um, historically, they weren't very well encrypted, the Microsoft keyboard. Mm-hmm. So um, these guys came up with uh, a thing called Key Sweeper, which is uh, basically a $10. Um, it looks like a $10. Uh, uh, well, it's 
looks like a USB charger, um, but inside of the USB charger, there's a little Arduino that will sit and listen to the radio and and suck out um, keyboard strokes that come from Microsoft keyboards. <laughs> and you know That's what great. the encryption of of the uh, of the keyboards is for those Microsoft oh, keyboards? Oh yeah, it's a uh, military grade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's XOR. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't I don't remember seeing XOR on the uh, FIPS one hundred and forty two list. No, 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 and, and <laughs> for good reason. But it's it's not really a good way to encrypt things. Um, so yeah, yeah. So um, so if you have a Microsoft keyboard, um, you know, check check your uh, uh, wall warts for um, ten dollar uh, keyboard catchers. Um, so. Then uh, the third uh, inductee that we have this week is the uh, National Football League in, in celebration of the uh, Super Bowl. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So um, the app for the, the NFL app, um, which I actually have, inst- uh, I have the uh, Game Rewind app installed so I could watch Steeler games. Um, it will send my username and password over the internet uh, unencrypted. <laughs> I never, never felt so smug about not watching football in my entire life. <laughs> yeah. So it's, yeah. Yeah. So they're doing All like right. API calls and then they're plugging the, the uh, username and password in as parameters, totally unencrypted. Totally amazing. Well, congratulations, uh, Key Sweeper, Gugu, uh, go, Gugu. Congratulations, Key Sweeper, Gogo, and NFL uh, for joining this Dave and Gunner Show Security Doghouse. Yeah. And to be fair, Key Sweeper is the scanner. Microsoft is in the doghouse. Oh, yes. Yeah. Microsoft is in the doghouse. That's correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So congratulations to uh, Microsoft, GoGo, and NFL uh, for joining the Dave and Gunner Show Security Doghouse. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. We, we should send them a, an official tote bag or something like that. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. T-shirts. Yeah. Uh, all right, so Marriott back in the day. Last time we heard from Marriott, Dave, uh, they were trying to keep us from running our own Wi-Fi hotspots. Yep, yeah, they were, they were jamming. Uh, so you could buy, uh, because customers were asking them that because they, they weren't buying enough of uh, Marriott's <laughs> conference uh, stuff. So now they're looking at adding in um, access to Netflix, Hulu, and other streaming services directly into their TV sets in the hotel room. Okay. Why? Yeah. Why? They well, they see it as a uh, potential to generate additional revenue. Uh, I get the sense that like Marriott is being run by a bunch of people living in 1995. Like yes. they seem to have like they seem to have like a casual grasp of the technology, but like have yeah. not completely thought this stuff through. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, have they ever heard of tablets? <laughs> no. Like, why? Why? Like your guests have already solved this problem. Like they are, like, they already know how to do this. Yeah, know? yeah, uh, yeah. In fact, I would um, like. Do you even turn the television on when you go to a hotel? I have not done it in years. Literally, yeah. years. And think of that. You're paying for the cable TV. You're paying for the TV set. Um, I would be just as happy to. You know, the same thing with the 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 telephone that's in the room sometimes you have two telephones in the room or a cordless phone they can get rid of that they can get rid of the tv set and i wouldn't notice don't know yeah and and while we're at it and while we're at it uh, they can get rid of the uh, uh while we're at it they can get rid of the spittoons and the uh, complimentary hair tonic yes yeah yeah i don't need any of that stuff yeah vitalis mm-hmm. <laughs> oh marriott what are you doing yeah and Speaking of, of uh, legacy thinking, um, so did you see the, the stuff about Windows 10? Uh, I saw that it was announced and that it's going to be free. That was kind of the yes. high level. Okay. So, so the deal is, is that if you have Windows 8 or Windows 7, um, you can get Windows 10 for free for the first year. And to me, it's, it's starting to look like it's, Windows is going to turn into a subscription service. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, that certainly sounds like it. Um, what you know, it's funny the psychology of that too. Like, it's free after the first year, and then you got to pay us. And I'm kind of like, well, who's going to use it for a year and then not use it, right? Right. Like, right. I'm going to use it for I'm going to use it for a year and then what? Upgrade to OS 10? Like, <laughs> like well, and and also sense. the yeah, and and the or stay on Windows 7 or Windows 8 and get 
free updates for like 10 years or something like that. And, and the other part uh-huh. is that they, at least in the press that I've seen, is that Microsoft hasn't come to a decision as to, well, okay, what happens after a year? Um, right. So right. you have no certainty, so why, you know, it's, yeah, I don't know. It's like I, I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna go ahead and call it. Um, the only way that Windows is Windows is way more valuable as a platform for the other stuff than it is as an operating system itself. I think they're gonna go to a subscription model. Um, mm-hmm. I think that that. But what that also means is that they're gonna have to seriously narrow the scope of their coverage um, because they can't keep supporting stuff like Windows XP, right? And so yep. they're gonna have to figure out a way, either it's carrots or sticks, is to get people off of the old versions of Windows, right? Because you remember they tried to retire XP. And they couldn't retire XP because XP was running like a non-trivial percentage of the ATMs in the world, right? Yeah. Um, and so they couldn't let those go without security patches. Um, Microsoft encouraged that in the past because that was a nice source of licensing revenue. Um, every year somebody had to pay up because uh, they didn't have a choice. Um, going to the subscription model, they're not going to be able to have stragglers like that because uh, they're going to need to control the support costs. So it'll be interesting to see how they kind of like renegotiate their relationships with the OEMs and renegotiate their relationships with the ISVs to make sure mm-hmm. that everybody is on a smaller number of releases. It's going to be, yeah, it's going to be interesting. Well, and meanwhile, I, you know, Chrome OS is getting better and better as, as I play with that on my Chromebook. Um, and there is no subscription fee with it or, or really any cost for it. Right, right, right. Yeah, just so. Although, you know, I've been thinking about this too, and we'll see, maybe we'll put a marker in for another episode because we're getting on an hour here. But um, I, I've been thinking a lot lately, especially, you know, tinkering with Android here, is that a lot of the, so a lot of the, a lot of the innovation is focused on consumption devices. Uh, so like Android tablets or phones, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, the reason why we still carry laptops around with us is because they are the best tool for creating stuff. Um, True. And I find that I use, you know, I'm happy to watch Netflix on my tablet. I'm happy to, you know, passively read my email on my phone. But when I want to get actual work done, when I want to like build something and send it to someone else, I tend to have to do that on a laptop. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I, I am getting concerned about the amount of activity and the amount of interest and the amount of kind of like industry attention on these kind of consumption only devices, uh, mm-hmm. because where we really need innovation, I think, or where, where we could really make a difference is on the like creation platforms, um, yeah. which now is the Linux desktop, OS 10 and Windows. Um, and so seeing all three of those, you know, go through kind of like different consumption models and kind of like figuring out what the world looks like now that they're not the dominant operating system and are being supplanted by like iOS and Android. Um, it'd be interesting to see uh, kind of how they can differentiate themselves and how they can make themselves a better platform for creation uh, rather than consumption, right? Yep. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Anyway. All right. So uh, we're, we're, this is going to be a long one, Dave. Let's, uh, let's see if we can blow through some of the, uh, some of the uh, Red Hat news here. Um, oh, we got an, oh, we got an event coming up. Uh, Crunchy. Uh, the delightful folks uh, who uh, do support for uh, Postgres, mm-hmm. um, we're doing a uh, uh, we're doing a webinar with them. Webinar, right? That's what that's what they call it. Um, mm-hmm. When people get on the web and, and talk, um, we're doing a we're doing a presentation with them um, on how to use uh, Postgres and OpenShift together, um, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool. Always like seeing us doing that doing that stuff with partners. Um, so that'll be coming up. There will be a link to that in the show notes. Um, mm-hmm. So check that out. Um, Dave, we did we did some security announcements recently. Do you have any favorites? Um, let's see. The one is on our uh, FIPS one forty dash two plans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. 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 Um, and so uh, the upshot of that is that uh, we really like FIPS one forty two, um, and we're going to continue to do the certifications. Um, we had to do some rejiggering with the versions, um, but uh, anyway, if you know what FIPS one forty dash two is, and you don't know what our plans are, just click on the link, and um, and there's a very eloquent piece by uh, Steve Grubb who runs that program for us, um, t- telling you about what our what our plans are for it in the future. Um, yep. And then uh, Ghost Dave Ghost. Yep. Yeah, so what it was a bug in glibc or a security vulnerability. So, um, and uh, as in typical fashion, we got a patch out pretty quickly for it. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. Um, let's see. And uh, on the on the reading list this week, mm-hmm. we have four items on the reading list. Um, mm-hmm. 
let's see, uh, Dave Wheeler did a paper on uh, container security that everybody should be checking out. Uh, mm-hmm. If for no other reason than I was thanked uh, for contributing to it. Um, and uh, <laughs> and also uh, our middleware folks, the Red Hat uh, the Red Hat development folks, uh, put out a white paper um, on the on our developer product portfolio, which I'll be honest, Dave, it's actually one of my favorite white papers that mm. Red Hat has ever produced. It's very clear, um, really excellent job. Um, mm-hmm. So if you have any interest in learning more about the Red Hat middleware suite, uh, definitely check out this white paper. Um, fully endorsed. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see, uh, General Justice. Yep. Uh, went on the record with the Enterprisers Project. So there's a nice interview with General Justice, who is our favorite retired general, mm-hmm. um, talking about open source and the DoD and um, uh, and how open source helped him accomplish his mission um, back when he was a back when he was a two star. Um, so that was a that was cool. And then uh, Dave, you got a you got a paper out as well, right? Yeah, I got uh, actually two articles that went out. Um, one was on uh, uh, government getting ready for containers, and then also. Um, some of the things that really excite me about uh, RHEL 7 and how uh, government users could take advantage of it. So I'm glad those those came out. Right on, right on. Um, let's see. Oh, we got a to-do list, Dave. Okay, so if yeah, you listen to us for... this is for our listeners. Mm-hmm. Yep. This is for the listeners. This is, okay, you guys all have homework. Um, mm-hmm. Item the first is friend of the show, Matt Mycini, is up for uh, an opensource.com People's Choice Award this year. Um, we uh, Matt's great. A uh, huge fan of the show, um, and uh, and an, and also works for an excellent partner of ours. Um, so everyone should go endorse Matt. Um, he's done a great job. Uh, so please vote for him, and we'll include a link to that uh, election in the show notes. Well, and, w- and while people are, are in the mood for voting, uh, they they should vote us up on iTunes because it w- I, you you turned me on to uh, what the podcast method. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, so yeah, that the was podcast it's method a, by a by a Dan Benjamin. Dan Benjamin. Uh, yeah, so it's a podcast on how to do podcasts. So yeah, very recursive. <laughs> but um, one of the things that he talks about is um, encouraging listeners to go to iTunes, even if they don't use iTunes, to go and uh, uh, vote for the shows that they like. Um, and because what that does is that increases the probability of the show showing up whenever uh, people search for. Uh, podcasts in their favorite podcast app. So even if people aren't using iTunes or iOS, um, a lot of the podcasting applications will use the the uh, iTunes database to search for um, for podcasts. So uh, if, if if we're voted up, then um, that we show up in more results and more people listen. And that's that does uh, wonders for all of our sponsors um, like uh, Sean Wells. <laughs> That's correct. That's correct. Um, let's see. And then, oh, and then congratulations to the OpenShift team. Uh, this is this is really great. They won the award from InfoWorld for Technology of the Year. Nice. So cool. Yeah, really nice. And you met Technology of the Year. That includes uh, gas turbines. Flying uh, cars. Glass, flying cars. Out of all that stuff, OpenShift is the technology of the year. And I couldn't agree more. Uh, so yep. thank you to InfoWorld uh, for that uh, for that wonderful recognition. Great, and great job to the OpenShift team. Yep. Work, guys. Uh, so Dave, uh, Purdue yep. University. Yep. Um, did you know they now have, uh, they now have an endowed chair uh, that is uh, sponsored by Red Hat? No, that's great. What, what's up with that? Yeah, so uh, this is how you know Red Hat is like a real life company now, um, is that we're now endowing chairs at universities. And so Purdue now has a Red Hat TM doctoral researcher in open innovation communities, um, which is uh, which is pretty cool. Uh, that's great. So there's I, I don't know who's going to fill the position necessarily, but um, I, I just think that's super fun to think about uh, think about Red Hat uh, kind of supporting academic research in areas that we care about. That's I yeah. think that's great. It's great. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, European Space Agency, they're they're in the news. Yes. Yeah. The ESA. Uh, so they made themselves a cloud, right? Uh, mm-hmm. They got all kinds of scientists and engineers and people writing software to get uh, get rockets up in the rockets up into orbit, and satellites and sending people to Mars and things like that. Uh, so they needed a cloud, and uh, they of course included Red Hat in that cloud. Uh, which is a very nice endorsement from them. Uh, NASA is also an excellent customer of ours. Um, so as far as space agencies go, we've got consensus. Uh, yep. Red Hat's the answer. Yeah, so yep. that's nice. Um, let's see. 
So, oh, and a, a third customer we like, uh, Paul Ford, who is a uh, is a blogger that I've enjoyed for many, many years. He was just on this last week's weekend's episode of uh, This American Life, by the way, um, if you haven't listened to that. Um, hmm. Paul Ford wrote an article about uh, Paper Magazine, Dave. Uh, can you yeah. remember, uh, do you know why a Paper was in the news recently? Um, because uh, um, uh, Kim Kardashian. Kim Kardashian, that's right. So they, they were the ones that published that uh, that uh, titillating photo of uh, Kim Kardashian. Now, this website is accustomed to about 2 million hits a month, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Perfectly respectable uh, for a kind of niche magazine. Um, and they were prepared for, they had to get prepared for it, like a an onslaught of traffic, as you can imagine. Um, yep. And so Paul went and interviewed uh, the engineers behind the paper magazine website and talk to them about how they made it ready for something went from 2 million hits a month to like 30 million hits in a day. Um, mm. And uh, I'll, I'll give away the spoiler. Uh, they used cluster to make nice. that possible. Good. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Yeah. Scale so nice, nice software defined storage. Mm-hmm. Software defined storage. Congratulations to the Red Hat storage folks uh, for making it possible uh, for Kim Kardashian to be even more overexposed than she already was. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, another thing I saw, too, was um, I, I just tripped across this, um, that there's actually a real company called uh, Cyberdyne. Um, cool. What do they make? Yeah. So they, they make this thing called a, a hybrid assistive hybrid assistive limb, uh, also known as HAL, um, which is the world's first cyborg type robot. Um, which um, aware's bodily functions can be uh, improved, uh, supported, and enhanced. So think about it like an exoskeleton. Huh. I, you know, I, I appreciate all these callbacks to, uh, to kind of sci-fi lore, um, but did they really want to invoke HAL uh, when, building, uh, <laughs> when building a robot? <laughs> yeah, or, or Cyberdyne. Um, I'm sure it was a total coincidence. Because <laughs> I know how both those stories ended. <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, oh, and I, I got a link. Uh, I got a link in the show notes. Also, uh, Nick Bostrom, um, who is a he's a philosopher, I think, um, and specializes in the area of uh, artificial intelligence. Um, he's got a new book out, uh, which you know, I was thinking like I heard about this thing, and I was like, I don't need to read another book about artificial intelligence. I feel like I got the. I feel like. I feel like I got the situation well in hand. I know what I'm, I should be afraid of, and I know what I should be enthusiastic about. Um, I got to tell you, uh, I've listened to two radio interviews with this guy so far, and he has a completely, uh, com- uh, he and he has a unique approach to the problem of artificial intelligence and a really nuanced idea of what the challenges are going to be and what the potential for the technology is. Um, and uh, anyway, so I encourage everyone to go uh, uh, to go check out some of these uh, some of these interviews um, and uh, and follow his blog because uh, uh, he is really a, just a tremendous thinker. I've been I was really impressed. Nick Bostrom. All right, so Dave, we've been we got uh, AI, we've got uh, we got uh, we got AI, we got. Uh, robots made by Cyberdyne. Uh, we got uh, Kim Kardashian stuff. We got uh, we got a whole reading list and homework uh, for our mm-hmm. listeners. Um, we've got uh, the security doghouse. Uh, Dave, if folks want to learn more about any of the things we talked about this week, uh, where, where should they go? Yeah, they need to go to dgshow.org. So D's and Dave, G's and Gunner, show.org. Excellent. Uh, and uh, next week we're talking to a normal. Yes. Yeah, we're having him back on the line. Yeah, so I'm excited about it. Nermal from uh, from Booz Allen Hamilton is going to be on to talk about some of the work that he's doing. So I'm excited for that. Uh, and in the meantime, Dave and uh, all you listeners, uh, have a great week. Yep. Thanks, Gunnar. Thanks, everybody.